Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. This is one of those Minchad teachings that I, I really have no idea how interesting it is. I spent a lot of time preparing all my Shabbat morning uh, learning, but like, I don't know how interesting it is to anyone else. I'm very interested in this particular um, <clears throat> take on uh, a bit of a, I, I think it's a little bit of like a parent-child spat between God and Israel. So we're going to look into some dynamic tensions between God and the Israelites at the very start of Devarim. That's what we're going to look at, like some some tension between God and the Israelites. So um, we're, it, this will require us looking back into the text eventually, but first I'll pass out some source sheets, which were also sent out with the Shabbat bulletin. If they're extras, you can just let them hang there. I'll come and collect them. Okay, so the caveat I have to start with, of course, is that as we begin Deuteronomy, we're in a retelling book. Almost nothing that we hear in Deuteronomy is brand new, fresh material. So the the story that we're hearing is not new story. And what I taught this morning and what I've sort of been teaching all week about Matot Masay at the end of Bamidbar is that the retelling already began before we even got to Devarim. But now we're really in the retelling territory. So the chapters at the beginning of Devarim are really long and we're gonna get deep into chapter one. And we're in a point in the story when we're recounting some of the journeys that the Israelites took and some of the encounters that they had with the nations who were in the Midbar. Now, you'll recall that when the Israelites were about to encounter different nations, God would sometimes speak to Moshe and say, here's what you should do. Right? Here, here's what you ought to do in approaching these people when they come along. Sometimes we get the narrative from a completely different perspective. Just a few weeks back, we had Parshat Balak, and the Torah sort of stepped outside itself, and it told us the story from the perspective of the king, right? We had the story of Balak and Bilam, of the wizard, that is a completely different perspective. But most of the time, we actually do get the kind of back and forth we're about to delve into in Devarim, which is God instructing Moshe on military moves for the people, what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. Okay, so the other thing that I have to remind you of is that the entire book of Deuteronomy begins as follows. If you're in the book or if you'd like to uh, follow along with me, I'm on 981. The whole book begins, Ela Hadivarim, these are the words, Asher Diber Moshe, that God, uh, that Moses spoke, El Kol Yisrael, to all of Israel, Be'ever Hayarden, on the cross side of the Jordan, Bamid Bar, in the wilderness, Ba'arava, in the Arba, um, Mol Suf, a, a, a cross from Suf, near, nearby the land of Suf, Bain Paran Uvein Tofel, between Paran and Tofel, Bilavan Vechatserot Vedizahav. So all around these lands with those following names. So the speaker 
hear is who? When we're hearing voice, when we're hearing first person speaking and narrative in the first chapter, at least of Devarim and much further actually, who's speaking? Moshe, right? The Torah starts with a narrative, a stum, we call it a narrative voice that says, these are the words that Moses spoke, and then it's Moses speaking. So when, going to the source sheet, when we see, Vayomer Adonai Eli, and then God said to me, who's the me? Moshe. Okay, we just want to be very clear, because there's really not context there once we start at, at way down at verse 42. Vayomer Adonai Eli, then God said to me, and this is not one of these direct reporting situations. This is Moshe say, recalling long ago what, Mo, what God said to Moshe. One more thing <laughs> before we start. You have to remember that years have passed, right? So the stories that Moshe is are recounting, the stories that are being recounted by Moshe, cheat my grammar that way, the stories that are being recounted, these are not necessarily stories that were lived by the people who are listening to Moshe. There is a whole generation that was made to wander in the wilderness, and now they're ever Haryarden, they're right across from the Jordan, they're about to enter the land except for Moshe, and Moshe is speaking to the youngins. And so there are some we know, right, who, for example, who, Right, Joshua. We know Joshua's there. Joshua's like, oh, the story again. <laughs> right? Like Joshua's the only one who's like, I, Moshe. He's like, is that how it happened? Eh, I'm not going to say anything. He's not even coming with us over there. Right? Like, I just, I picture the whole, I could write some good Joshua fan fiction and, and Midrash. Uh, but Irv is going to say something before we read this verse. Right. So Irv says, I, why do you assume he was tired of the stories? You know, what I spoke about this morning in repeating stories is that if somebody's repeating a story, it must be for a very, very good reason. And so I was saying that the story, uh, for example, of the Exodus and the Jewish people taking their stuff from their Egyptian slave masters was told very differently in Exodus than it was in Bamidbar. And so here, I, in this teaching, this learning this afternoon, night. Uh, we're not looking at the way in which this storytelling is divergent from the way that it first seems to have transpired in Bamidbar, but for sure, that is one way in which storytelling is interesting a second and a third and a 25th time around, which is, you know, how is it different this time? Is the fish a little bit bigger? You know, so, um, right, so uh, who, who was telling me about Truman? Was that was that you, Marshall, who was telling me about the book, Truman? No. Somebody came up to me after services and said, you know, uh, Truman said, like, if a story is worth telling more than once, then it's worth telling better, like, the next time, um, which I agree. So Moshe hopefully is telling it better. Vayomer Adonai Eli, emor lahem. So God said to me, says Moses, say to them, and this was at some point in their journey, lo ta'alu, don't go up there. The lo tilachamu. Don't fight because I'm not in your, it's a technical language. I'm not in your midst, but, but it really means like you're not in God. You're, you're not, you're not carrying, you don't have pixie dust, right? Like don't try to fly. You don't have pixie dust. You don't have special God sparks with you. Don't, don't try anything. The low tinagfu lifne oivechem. 
and and you'll you'll be um you'll be what's tinagfu like nogpo yeah it's translated as routed but what would that be nogpo you won't be maybe thwarted right by by your by your enemies the the commentators are basically all going to avoid the latter part of this verse and get stuck on low ta'alu. Don't go up there. And we're going to hover on that mostly. So we're going to look at Sifte Hachamim, which is a super commentary. That's, it's not like when we say that kale is a superfood, which means that, you know, we call food superfoods when people wouldn't eat them otherwise. A super commentary means a commentary on a commentary. So the Sifte Chachamim is, um, don't go up there. So what, what are they saying? lo talu. Okay, lo tilachmu lamali. So pshita de'im lo yalu lo milchama. There wouldn't be a war. If they didn't go up there, Obviously, there wouldn't be a war, okay? So then why does it need to say don't wage war? So it's obvious if they don't go up there, there's not going to be a war. So what does it mean? Don't go up there because you will not be able to wage war against them. Because if so, going up the mountain will be your downfall. Anyone want to say that in plain English? Right, but why? You'll, Joy says you'll, you'll die, but why? why don't go up there their question is since it's written don't go up there why do they have to bother why does the verse have to bother saying don't wage war if you're not going up there obviously you're not waging war so why does the verse bother saying and don't wage war so joey i i like the way that you said that so that they're not tempted to in case they do go in meaning god perhaps a bit omniscient all-knowing thinks but if you do go up there here's what you need to understand I'm gonna give you a reason I'm not just gonna tell you don't go up there don't go up there because I need you to understand that any version of your going up there any any future version of your going up there means you will not be successful you will not win going up there there is no version of this in which you win okay the following verse if you go uh, two-thirds of the way down the page, says, Va'adaber aleichem, I spoke to you, who's I? Moshe, again, just want to make sure we're very clear, right? Because for a moment there, God was speaking. Now we're back to Moshe. Va'adaber aleichem, Moshe spoke to them. Velo shematem, and you didn't listen. Va'tamaru et pi Adonai, you disregarded the mouth of God, literally. Vatazidu vata'alu hahara. And you, you um, disobeyed and you t- went up on the mountain. <sighs> they did it. They went up there anyway, right? Now, those who are, were alive at that time, they know, they know this story, right? They know that that's exactly what happened. Okay. So we're going to flip the page and go to the bottom of the following page. I, we don't have time for the, the commentary that starts at the bottom of the first page. I wish we did. Same thing happened to me this morning, but I got to keep us honest that we actually finish in time for us to finish along with Shabbat. So we're going to go to the Orachayim 
on uh, this verse, on, the, on verse 43, who takes up this idea about you rebelled against God's command, you thwarted God's command, um, and wants uh, to explain this piece of the verse. Moses referred to this refusal of the Israelites to heed God's order not to ascend the mountain. Another element he referred to was that the fear of violating God's command should have been greater than the fear of their enemies. Right, the first part of the verse was simply, what the Orachim is saying is, Moshe says, God says, don't go up on the mountain. So what does Moshe want the people to hear? If you go up on the mountain, then what? You'll lose, but they, he wants them to hear something else. I think he wants them, according to the Orachim, if you go up onto the mountain, you are disobeying God's command, right? That is yet another layer. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing as don't go up on the mountain, you're going to lose. It's don't go up on the mountain because God said don't go up on the mountain, which is any person who has ever been responsible for a small child, whether it was yours or you were babysitting or you were teaching or you were an uncle or an aunt or you've ever been with a child, you know there's a very big difference between because I said so and because here are the consequences if you do that. Don't touch the stove. I said don't go anywhere near that stove. Never go near that cabinet. I'm telling you, as your mother, as your babysitter, as your teacher, as your rabbi, do not go near there. That is not a place for you. Versus, if you do that, you're going to get burned. I don't want to see that happen to you. And it's a choice, right? It's a teaching choice. It's a leadership choice. The Orachayim is reading into this moment that Moshe's frustration with the people and why he's revisiting this story is, I'm standing here at the Jordan River, and I'm frustrated as I think back on this story, and I think, I said, God said, don't go up there. I don't care if you don't care if you don't lose the war, which is clearly what they said, right? Well, so what if we lose? We're going up there. We got to try. We can't not try, right? But God said, don't go up there. We're going to leave this commentary there, and we're going to turn to the next page, You'll notice we're skipping verse 44. That's deliberate. Okay? We're skipping verse 44. We're going to go straight to verse 45. Okay. So, something happened. They were not successful. Obviously, because they were told they weren't going to be successful. Okay? In this campaign. And then we get to this point. Vatashuvu vativku lifne Adonai. And they sat and they wept before God. This felt like an appropriate verse to bring the week before Tisha B'Av, right? We sit and we weep before God, right? They sat and they wept before God. Now, notice, again, the direct dynamics and the, and the lack of triangulation. Moshe says, God says, don't go up there. They lose a war. They sit and they cry to God. Hey, there are all sorts of different vectors, right? Arrows pointing in different directions. Moshe says, God says, don't go up there. They say, we're going up anyway to Moshe. They're not successful. 
and then they cry directly to God. Yes, Joey. Right. It's as if God said, don't do it. And if you, if you do it anyway, don't expect it to go unpunished. And this is the question that begins to rise up, which is, is the disobedience of the command of God then resulting in some kind of a punishment? Where do we see a similar sense of don't do that, and if you violate that, there may be consequences in our Torah? You have to think way, way, way back at the very beginning. Adam and Eve. Remember that story? God said, don't do it. Did God give Adam and Eve a reason? I should have included the sources. Did God give Adam and Eve a reason? God said, don't do it. Don't it. Didn't give a reason, right? So don't do it, as Joy is saying. Yeah, don't do it. And, and then there were consequences. Now, God, like many of us in positions of leadership, not to compare us to God, but we are in made in God's image. So I don't feel badly saying that, right? Uh, so like many of us, God seems to change tactics sometimes and sometimes seems to give a reason, right? Don't do this. Don't go do that. Because if you do that, I'm telling you, you're not going to be successful. But there is a question if there's an element also, not just in the predictive, like, I said, didn't I tell you you weren't going to be successful? But also, I said, don't go up there. So I'm not doing anything to step out for you, right? I'm not going to um, put my godly neck out uh, for you to try to save you from the situation I told you not to go up there. So well said. Joey says, God's not going to bail you out because you brought the situation around your, uh, on yourself. He said, I'm not Bekir Bechem. I'm not in your midst. I am I'm not for this one. I can't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to back you up. You know, I, I don't know why this is the thing that comes to, I know why this is the thing that comes to mind. My children are very big fans of Newsies, which recalls, it, it recounts the entire history of the newspaper strike by the children in New York City. Nons of recognition, I know, okay. Well, anyway, a news, it's a story of a newspaper strike. And um, there's a, uh, I think it might be too convoluted to explain uh, why exactly this is resonant, but it's very, but it's, but it's resonant that um, that there is a a con there are um, there is a uh, trope in that particular movie from 1992 that was turned into a play that if a certain group isn't on board with uh, in this case like a, a unionizing of the kids all across New York City there can't be success. Like, it's just, in, in this case, they say if Brooklyn isn't on board, we just can't do it, right? Yeah, you gotta, you gotta have, in, in the case of the Torah, you need God on your side, right? You really do. You need God on your side in order for this to work. So God already told them that God wasn't gonna be there. Lo and behold, God wasn't there. And then they aren't successful. They sit and they cry out to God. Velo shama Adonai And God said, la, la, la. <laughs> I'm not listening to your cries, right? God didn't listen to your your voice. The lohezin alechem. He also didn't give ear to you. Okay, duplicating that thought. God had no interest in hearing your whines after you disobeyed. Okay, Rashi said, if it is at all possible to say ki 
asitem midat rahamal ke'ilu achzari. What that means is, why? What, what is Rashi trying to say there? It's as if you made God's merciful attribute into something not merciful. The Sifte Chachamim come to explain, this is because in the Torah, Adonai is usually used as the name of God when recounting the God of merciful attributes. And Adonai was the word used here in the text. But because the Israelites disobeyed here, and then God didn't give heed to their cries after they lost in this battle, the, the impression left was that God was not, a, that Adonai was not of merciful quality. They rendered their own God merciless, right? It is the, the God-like version of like, you're such a mean mom. I'm a mean mom. I'm a mean teacher for, you know, for, for punishing. I mean, I, I swear, like what, what, uh, what resonance for me to, 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 um, to hear this. You've, you've rendered, like you've, you've rendered your own God, not what God wanted. God's like, I don't want to be this God. I told you don't do it, but now you've rendered me this kind of a God. You've, you've changed my attribute. This is not the God I intended to be. I came to you merciful. My mercy was telling you, that's not a fight you're going to win, and you disobeyed me. Sporno has something to say. Oh, Bob, Bob has something to say on this. Isn't what, what we call tough love? I, you know, I, I don't think, to me, I don't see this as a moment of tough love. I, I suppose I could see the argument made for tough love. I, I should turn over here in case Tzvi or Larry or Brant want to chime in. You should feel free to unmute and, and chime in. Um, I don't see it as a moment of tough love because I see in Rashi and the Sifte Chachamim who are trying to explain Rashi here, I, I see in this a moment of God trying to be merciful, trying to give insight beyond earthly insight to the Israelites, really trying, and the Israelites completely ignoring it. And God saying, you're making me out to be a monster of a God that I didn't come and save you, but I told you from the outset that I wasn't gonna be in your midst. And, um, the only place where I see it is what Joey said earlier was, I'm not going to come bail you out, so to speak. Uh, but that depends on your own theological standing when it comes to whether or not God is the kind of God who, who can breach human borders and kind of come and save, right? Was this a moment for miracles or not? It looks like we have a comment over here. Right, so it, tough love, as Rachel understands it is, you know, I... I teaching people not uh, that that there won't always be someone to swoop in and and save them and here we have god just saying i'm telling you i'm god and i'm going to tell you when i'm going to be there for you and when i'm not going to be there for you so it, it's just playing by different rules of the universe but i can see the comparison i can see why it does feel a little bit like tough tough love ish because there are times when god has swooped in so the the question is um when is it god being tough on us and when is it god just being god that's a big core question of this i included this forno at the bottom of this page just so that you could see that our friend the 15th century commentator sporno says almost precisely what uh like sticks to almost precisely the same line of thinking as rashi and the sifte chachamim it's, 
I, I don't see a departure from this line of thought. God didn't even listen to your plea to delay the punishment or to suspend the part of the punishment for their children after their parents had died. Moshe used this fact as proof that the repentance of their parents at the time had not been complete or sincere. As a result, even their tears had been to no avail. The only point that uh, perhaps he's making is that the people who are crying may have been the children of those who were killed in battle. That, that's about the only chiddish there, the only new piece of information. But I think that it's pretty clear that that's the dynamic that's happening in the Torah at this point, is uh, uh, Moshe seeing the people being, remembering what it was like to watch an, an almost unrepentant but certainly sorrowful people in the wake of this massacre that they experienced. Okay, so we are going to look in just a moment. You can prepare your, if you can see, we should do this before all light is gone. Um, if you want to turn to verse 44 of the first chapter, which is on page 989. I'll give you a second to turn there. And I want us to look back at what actually did happen in the battle. I left that verse out. And we looked at what happened when the Israelites didn't listen. And now I'm going to read the verse first in Hebrew and then in English. This is verse 44. That word chorma is going to play in just a moment into the last commentary we look at. Then the Emori, the Amorites who lived in those hills, came out against you like bees. Other commentators who I didn't include say that like bees mean it's uh, as if they swarmed them. And yet other commentators say it's like they killed and then they themselves were killed immediately. Right? You know how a bee is, to, is said to sting and then immediately it dies? And so it was as if it was total destruction at the end because... They killed, and then they were killed, and so there was just death on the battlefield. So it's an evocative picture. Um, and then uh, they chased you, and they crushed you at uh, Horma in Seir. Okay. So the Shnei Luchot Habrit, which is this beautiful Hasidic commentary comes with a commentary on this verse that speaks to a paragraph from the Shabbat Mincha Amidah, which I cannot say I've ever come across a commentary before on, on uh, Torah, on Parshanut, that had to do with the Shabbat Mincha liturgy. So this was a new one for me, and I happen to love this commentary. So this is what he says. He says, Ha'adam ha'meforash etatzmo min ha'klal. I'll see how long I can read this Hebrew in this light. As a result, the person who separates himself from the community, pursuing a lifestyle not acceptable to it, divorces himself from life. As a limb detached from its body, he will die. This is the meaning of the imposition of a cherem or a ban 
or excommunication, such a person is on the way to chormah, like annihilation, this place, chormah, that's mentioned here in this verse. That is why the numerical value of the word cherem is 248. Israel's essential advantage over the other nations is that it is a composite unit, a matter of body. Right, 248 is the number of bones in the body. Okay? And so it's like we are one body and one body that can be destroyed when a limb comes off of it. Israel's essential advantage over the other nations is that it is a composite unit. Our sages have underlined this when they formulated the Shabbat Mincha prayer. When we say, Ata echad veshimcha echad umi ke'amcha Yisrael. That's what they mean in which they emphasize that just as God is unique in being one, so Israel is unique in being one single unit as a people. I wrestle with connecting this last piece to the rest of the misunderstandings that I think are taking place uh, that, that I think are being recounted. I don't think the misunderstandings are taking place on the banks of the Jordan. I think they're being recounted. And I think misunderstandings are being recounted. This is Moshe's will and testament, basically, this, this moment of Devarim and where he's recounting all of these times when the Israelite people simply couldn't listen. But what I do think is happening here in this recounting is a lesson about that horma and a lesson about that and that separating from the people as well. I think this is an additional lesson that's being heaped upon the lesson of listening to what God says when it comes to um, both types of proclamations, both when God says, because I said so, and also when God says, don't do this because the consequence is that, because God also offers out those consequences, as in, for example, the second paragraph of the Shema or in the Tochacha, right? We have long swaths of the Torah where we get consequences laid out exactly for exactly, um, for, for precise uh, um, poor action. But in addition to that, I think that Moshe is trying to describe to us that what happened back at this time when the Israelites did not follow God's direction was a moment of the body of Israel falling apart a bit. It is, it's, a, it's a moment of separation, of limb separation. Uh, perhaps, uh, if I were writing the commentary here, perhaps I would say something like a little bit of separating the head from the body. Right? It's a little bit of, of separating the leadership from the rest of, of the limbs, if, if I can be so bold as to say. It's a little bit of not following... Um, the, the person who is conveying godly messages. But I particularly love this idea that God's oneness, that what Moshe wants to leave his people with before they head off to a land he's not accompanying them to, is that God's oneness is a model for the oneness that they ought to be striving for. So that's what the Shnei Luchot Abrit is saying, is 
What God is trying to do is to offer you directions to act as one as a people such that you can stay together here in your wanderings and then in the land as one mirroring God in the divine space as well. Um, and that's a lovely message to leave the people with in addition to doing what God says and it just because God says so. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tba.org.